If you have your Bible, please turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, and we're in uh, week two of a four-week series. Um, I've noticed everyone keeps chuckling at this title, being winsome to winsome, um, where we're returning basically to our 2018 ministry theme of calling for four. And each week, uh, I'm, I'm inviting you, not only that I would pray on your behalf, but you would even pray for yourself and for others that... Each week you would walk away burdened uh, with just one person, one name, one face that the Holy Spirit is putting on your heart. He's not letting you ignore, not letting you forget. And then let's pray not only for the burden of that name, uh, but pray for opportunities for us to share the gospel with them and invite them to church. Um, so not only praying that God would burden us with that face, that name, that person, but but to open up an opportunity. Maybe they have a question to ask you. Maybe they ask you what you're doing on uh, over the weekend. Maybe they're asking you, um, you know, how, how, how you are handling certain things. And these all being ways that the Lord uses as opportunities for us to share the gospel. So today we're looking at Acts 26, and this, title's, uh, this sermon's title is A Winsome Testimony. And so with that, please stand with me as we read and receive God's holy word together from Acts chapter 26. I'll be reading uh, just the selected portions as found in the sermon insert and also uh, up here on the PowerPoint. Here now the reading of God's holy word. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Verse 4. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. And not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when he, we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 15, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Verse 19, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Verse 22, To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, 
in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Friends, let's pray before we spend more time in reflection on God's word. Father, we pray for your spirit, his help, his insight, his illumination, his conviction, his encouragement. We pray for your Holy Spirit to quicken our hearts so we would respond, not as dead people, but as living people, renewed again with a new heart that beats in rhythm with yours, that cares for the things you care about that longs for the things that you long, that desires the things you desire. And we know one of them, Lord, is that all would be saved. And so to that end, Father, as we wrestle with this theme of being winsome, to winsome, God, that you would allow our hearts and our minds and our speech and our conduct to be in accordance with what you desire so that many would come to know Jesus that they would bend the knee to him, declaring him Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. You know, testimonies are stories that tell of our salvation. You know, a testimony is not just a mere uh, set of propositions or facts about our salvation. That's what a systematic theology book is. Jesus did this. He died in this way. He rose again in this way. But what a testimony is, it's told as a story about our salvation. And the reason that testimonies are so powerful, the reason they're told as stories is because actually our redemption is told as a story. Scholars call this the history of redemption or redemptive history. And this story of redemptive history, it's very simple. It begins in a garden, it climaxes on a hill, and it ends in a new city. This story has one main character. He's a very unlikely hero who defeats the giants of this world, not through strength and might, but through weakness and sacrifice. The story of Christianity, the story of our redemption, and therefore our own personal stories are lost and found stories. They're rags to riches stories. They're exile to homecoming stories. And because of this great story of salvation, Jesus, through his sacrificial death, saving sinners, and then, more than that, promising to bring them home safely one day. That story of redemption, as we are wrapped up into that story, as we are saved and experience the redemption of Jesus, we too begin to tell our stories, our testimonies of grace. Now it's important to understand that in our own testimonies, in our stories of grace, we are not the heroes. It's so amazing how often we tell stories where we're the good guys. We're the heroes. We like to think of our salvation that way. We like to think of us as the ones who are willing to sacrifice their lives to help others. But you are not, you are not the, the, the Jack Dawson's who you know, gave up his spot on a life raft to save the roses you know, when the Titanic was hit. We're, we're not Jack Dawson. We're not uh, Andy Dufresne who, uh, if you remember, escaped Shawshank through sheer determination and his will, and he delivered himself. <laughs> We're not Andy Dufresne. You know who we are? We're Rapunzel's, trapped in the tower with no hope of escape unless someone comes to get us. We are the sleeping beauties under the curse of a deep, deep sleep who cannot be awakened unless by the kiss of a true love. 
So our testimonies, these are stories about how we were rescued. And our stories, our testimonies need to be centered around Jesus because he alone is our hero, the rescuer, the savior. And I really believe that when our testimonies, when we're able to share them in this kind of way, when they're clearly articulated in a way that doesn't put us at the spotlight but puts Jesus at the spotlight, then God actually can use our testimonies to move, to convict, to encourage people in such powerful ways that, that merely listing theological facts of what Jesus Christ did and the efficacy of the cross and limited atonement and all these things fail simply to do. And what's really interesting is if you look in the book of Acts, the author, Luke, he includes Apostle Paul's testimony three times. So Apostle Paul's story of grace, how we were saved, is told three times. First is told through Luke's uh, perspective in Acts 9 when, when uh, Paul is on the road to Damascus and he meets Jesus. And then the two other times, it's actually Paul's account when Paul is telling his testimony to somebody else, found in Acts 22 and then in our passage today in Acts 26. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this testimony of, of Paul, his third and last testimony, and I want us to learn how we can use our own testimonies as an authentic and powerful method of evangelism and sharing the gospel. And so the gospel truth today is this. God uses our testimony so others can know about his saving grace. In Jesus. Let me say that again. Our gospel truth is God uses our testimony so others can know about his saving grace in Jesus. And so as we look at this passage, I want to consider three things with you. First, the purpose of a testimony. Second, the parts of a testimony. And then third, the power of a testimony. And so let's take a look at Acts 26. First, by considering the purpose of a testimony. Now, because we're not doing a series in Acts, let me just give you a little bit of context of what's going on. Apostle Paul is imprisoned for his faith. And as he's imprisoned, and he's on trial, he appeals to Caesar. And therefore, at this time, he's awaiting his trial in Rome before the emperor. Now, in the meantime, as Paul is awaiting his trial, his case comes up to King Agrippa, who is interested in meeting Paul. King Agrippa is the king of the local region. He's a Jewish king. He hears about Paul's story and says, I'd really like to meet this guy. I'd really like to uh, know what uh, his story is. And so Paul knows that as he comes before Agrippa, whatever Agrippa thinks about him doesn't matter because he's appealed to Rome. So no matter what, he's going to Rome to have his trial. But what's interesting is that even though what Agrippa thinks of Paul doesn't really matter, Paul still seizes the opportunity to share his testimony with the king. Now, why does Paul share his testimony? What is his purpose? And Luke doesn't tell us. Paul doesn't tell us this is why I was sharing it. But we actually see from Agrippa's response what Paul's purpose was. And so Paul shares this beautiful testimony in Acts 26, and Agrippa knows right away what Paul is doing. And so he says in verse 28, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? It's a bit of a humorous exchange, if you think about it. Paul stands before this king, and he delivers this wonderful testimony, all about what God has done in his life. And at the end of it, Agrippa is like, really? This is, this is what you want to talk about? You're going to go to Rome? Your life, you may die, you may be executed. You're going to stand before the emperor on trial, and you're really worried about sharing the gospel with me? That's your main concern? 
And what's really interesting, it reveals a lot about a person when in a situation when it's warranted for them to be thinking about themselves, when they're actually concerned about others. It's really revealing of Paul's heart that he stand, he's going to, he may possibly die, yet in the meantime, he's not worried about that. He's worried about King Agrippa's salvation. It really reveals the true heart of Paul. This kind of heart that we talked about last week, that no matter what, he would become all things to all people so that he might save some. That kind of heart. You know, what kind of heart do you have? Now, I remember years ago, uh, my mother was diagnosed with Moya Moya disease, which is a really rare disease about when certain uh, uh, veins aren't connected to your brain and so these, these smaller uh, capillaries have to be formed and uh, because they're so thin when blood is pumped, uh, since they're so thin, they, they're prone to uh, kind of uh, explode or you know, burst and therefore you, know, you get uh, aneurysms and strokes and things like that. And so my mother had this disease and she was in Korea when she found out. It was a very emotional time in, in our family's uh, life. And, and I remember the church I was at, um, uh, when I heard the news, I shared it with the church, basically asking them for prayer. Can you all pray about this? And everyone was, was concerned. And um, I remember this one particular church member who uh, he himself was undergoing through tremendous personal suffering in his family. Uh, basically, both of his parents were diagnosed with cancer, and they eventually passed away within seven months of each other. And he was undergoing just such incredible suffering. And, and I remember it was just a really difficult time for him and his wife. And I think in, in a situation like that, it's totally warranted if he's a little self-centered, if he's a little just kind of worried about the things in his own home. But what really moved me, what really struck me was that whenever I saw him and I approached him with the intent to, to extend pastoral care to him, that he would always ask first, how's your mother doing? And that really revealed his heart, which is this incredible love for people, concern for other people in the midst of his own difficulties. And that's what we see Paul having. He's standing trial. He might die, and yet he's worried more about King Agrippa's life than his own. And this is because Paul's heart was conformed to the image of Jesus. That even knowing that he may possibly die, yet having concern for another, doesn't that sound very familiar? If you remember, Jesus in Luke is being hung on a cross unjustly for the sins of others, and yet he still prayed for his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In the midst of facing his own death sentence, his heart still longed for the salvation of others. You know, Paul's aim, Paul's motive is taken right from Jesus because he's conformed into his image. And so Agrippa says to Paul, are you really trying to persuade me to be a Christian right now? Is this really what's going on? Don't you know your fate? And then Paul says, I love it, his humble response in verse 29, whether short or long, I would pray to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul's saying, you're darn right. I wish everybody, not just you, but everyone who's hearing would be just as I am. Of course, not a prisoner. I don't wish that on anybody else. Amen. But I wish you would all be saved. That's my heart's desire. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for everyone who's listening, that you would know this Jesus personally, intimately, savingly, joyfully. And so Paul shares his testimony in order to win Agrippa over. And what's beautiful about Paul's testimony is that it doesn't, it's not about Paul's goodness. 
it's about Jesus' grace. You see, when you're able to tell your testimony in a way that's not about your goodness, but about Jesus' grace in your life, then your testimony can become a tool and a method by which to share the gospel. So let me ask you this question. Do you have a testimony prepared to share with others? Do you have a testimony prepared? Have you thought about your testimony that if anyone were to ask you, you would be able to share it? Have you taken the, the time to think about, you know, how God has saved you, from what he saved you to what he has saved you? Do you know your own story of grace? Do you know how to share it with other people with the hope that they too would become Christians? You know, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter encourages Christians in this way. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, I know this is a famous apologetics text, always being prepared to make a defense. And, okay, that's great. Pay attention to that word, but pay attention to the other important word that comes. Your defense of what? For the hope that I have. This personal, living hope that I know a Savior who loves me and walks with me, who is my shepherd and my God, who leads me beside still waters who delivers me out of the valley of the shadow of death? Do I have a testimony that testifies, that is able to at any moment tell the story of how this Jesus pursued me and overtook me and came for me and knows me and walks with me? Christian, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. What that hope means to you, how you got that hope, what that hope is providing for you. Do you have a testimony of grace, a story of God's salvation in your life to share. Now, what does a testimony entail? So, okay, Andrew, you're telling me I'm to have a testimony. Well, what do I say in it? And this is our second point, the parts of a testimony. This is our longest point today, so stick with me here. If I asked you to share your testimony, how many of you could stand up right now and do it? Well, I'm sure any of you, every one of us could probably stand up and just kind of give a testimony. But here's the thing. I think many of us who grew up in the church think that we have an uninteresting and ordinary testimony. And you may wonder, man, my testimony sounds just like everybody else's. How can it be helpful? How can sharing that I grew up in a Christian family and went to church all my life and I don't know when I believed, but one day I came to believe. How can that help this guy who's struggling, who, who didn't grow up in a Christian home, who doesn't know anything about religion? How will my testimony help this person? Well, it all depends on how you think of your testimony. So think about, really quickly, just kind of outline some of the highlights of your testimony of your testimony that you would share with somebody. And if you kind of thought about it a little bit, let me ask you this question. When you finish telling your testimony, how does it end? Does it end with when you accepted Jesus? And if it does, that's the problem. That's the problem with your testimony. So many of our stories are focused on our life before Jesus and then when we met Jesus and then the final climax, the conclusion is and we met Jesus and then we're done. But if meeting Jesus is the climax of the story, then what about everything that happened after you met Jesus? 
Shouldn't the story actually get sweeter and sweeter and better and better since the day you met Jesus? You know, one pastor, I, I, I read a, this illustration he, he, he gave where he says, uh, I want you to think, imagine that you're attending a couple's 50th wedding anniversary. And so it's, a, it's a 50 years, and so they throw this anniversary, and they invite all these people. And imagine the husband and the wife, they both share stories. They go up and they share their stories of how they met each other and all the memories of what dating life looked like and uh, all the funny you know, stories, that, funny incidents that happened and the, and the slip-ups that happened on the day of the wedding. And then they all said, well, thank you for coming, and they sat down. And he says, wouldn't there be an obvious absence of what they mean to each other now? how much they mean to each other now, how after 50 years of marriage their lives are different now. He says, you would imagine that a couple would share their life since they've gotten married, since they've had kids, lessons that they've learned along the way, new experiences shared, new memories formed. You'd expect to hear about how much they still love one another. You'd, ex- you'd want to hear about how 50 years of marriage has served to conform, confirm an ever-growing love and commitment to one another. That's what a true testimony is. And that's what Paul is doing here. So if you actually look at Paul's testimony, he's broken up into three pieces. The first, from verses 4 to 11, Paul talks about his life before Christ. 4 to 11, he talks about life before Christ. And then verses 12 to 18, he talks about how and when he met Christ. And then verses 19 to 23, he talks about his life with Christ. And so we're just going to take those three things and we're going to talk about the parts of a testimony. So first, life before Christ. Testimonies must begin with life before Christ in order to illustrate what Jesus saved you from. Now, of course, we all know the answer. What did Jesus save you from? Well, he saved me from sin. But do you know sin manifests itself in people's lives in different ways? We're all sinful in different ways. So when Paul talks about his own testimony, he, st- he starts in verse 4 saying, when I was, in, when I was a youth, it, I grew up as a Jew. I grew up as a Pharisee. And then in verse 9, he, he writes, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. About how he went, he was murdering Christians, and when people were voting to have Christians killed, he was the first to raise his hand. And Paul's saying, my life before Jesus looked like opposition to the gospel. I was openly opposed to Jesus. I was actively opposed to Christianity. And maybe some of you in your life before Jesus, you were just like this. You were against Jesus. You, You hated the things about Christianity. You were angry about religion. And you needed to be saved from your active hostility and animosity toward God. Maybe some of you were like that. You just hated everything about organized religion, about church, about Jesus. But I imagine most of you weren't like that, because few people are. For others, sin is expressed in your lives in different ways. I think for some of you, were you running away from Jesus in the church and you kind of lived your life as the typical prodigal son story? Maybe you were committed to pursuing fleshly desires and worldly lusts and you were living in darkness for fleeting pleasures of this world. Now, this kind of lifestyle has become synonymous with the you know, common picture of sin in the church. And some of you live lives like this before. You met Jesus, and you needed to be saved from destroying your soul with empty promises and ungodly pursuits. That's your life before Christ. Now, others of you, your sin didn't look so bad. You didn't seem like such a bad person because you were engaged in what Jerry Bridges called respectable sins. Respectable sins. These are sins that society gives everybody a pass on because they don't look so outwardly evil. 
impatience, bitterness, grumbling, complaint, envy. Everyone looks at these sins and say, well, you know, we're all human, aren't we? These are okay sins in the church. But even then, you still needed saving because these quieter sins were at work in your heart, rotting you from the inside out. Well, others of you, you look like the elder brother in the prodigal son story. You didn't leave the church. You stayed in the church. You served diligently. You attended faithfully. You were involved in so many things. But the problem here is that you being in the church brewed in you a spirit of incredible self-righteousness and judgment. And you use other people as a standard by which you looked down on them and felt better about yourself. You're in the church. They're out late on Saturday nights. They need God's grace. I'm a little less needy. And this is dangerous because even though you needed just as much saving, you were convinced that you weren't as bad as those out there. But here's the point. We all needed to be saved. And that's why your testimony must begin with the humble recognition that Jesus alone saves. Now, let me make a note here really quickly. We need to be careful that we do not misrepresent the gospel to people when we speak about our testimonies, when we share about the way we were like before Jesus, we need to be careful that we don't misrepresent it. Because so many times, if you grew up, if, if you grew up in a Christian home, Christian family, you grew up going to church, you often speak about your testimony as if it wasn't an amazing miracle of God's grace. Because you think the only way that your testimony in God's grace can be amazing is if you lived a crazy, licentious, hedonistic lifestyle. You ever go to those youth retreats and they put on skits together? And one, somebody's skit is always about how, how you were saved and someone turning to Jesus. And it's always some guy with a rolled up piece of paper acting as a cigarette or drugs and living that way. I mean, when was the last time you saw one of these skits where the person who needed saving was a self-righteous Pharisee who was sitting in the church week after week trusting in their own righteousness, not Christ? And when you say, no, 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 that kind of life is okay, what you really need to be saved from is this bad kind of lifestyle then you're reinforcing this wrong understanding of the gospel that's only for bad people. But the reason we need it is because it's not only your bad deeds by which you are lost from God, it's trust in your good deeds by which you are also lost in God. Because some of us, we definitely needed saving from the world, from our flesh, from our sins, but many more of us needed saving from religion in our own Christian performance. And if that's you, it's a miracle that Jesus died for you too. All stories of God's grace are amazing because he saved us from sin. Are you able to identify and articulate what your life was like before Christ and how you were in desperate spiritual need of him? So that's the first part. What was my life like before Christ? Second, Life encountering Christ, life meeting Jesus. So then Paul moves on into how Jesus came into his life. Paul had this unique encounter with Jesus. Look at verses 13 and 14. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me. Now this kind of experience is not common. It's uncommon. It's not an ordinary Christian experience. 
But here's the thing, even though nobody in here, I don't think, has had an experience similar to Paul, similar, similar uh, like outwardly in terms of experience, the inward reality of the disruption of your life should all be the same. Well, but here's the thing. How you met Christ is so different for all of us. Some of you met Christ in a way that's kind of like Paul. So, well, Paul met uh, Jesus in like this great Damascus showdown, and he encountered Christ, and his life was radically changed. And maybe you don't have an example like that, but something equally vivid, something equally memorable, not, not, not great light shining on you and a voice being heard, but something very palpable, something very real where you were in a place of deep loneliness and fear and weakness and Jesus met you, or you were in tremendous suffering and brokenness and Jesus ministered to you, and in that way, your encounter with Jesus is incredible. And maybe for some others, it was a little bit different and more simpler. Maybe you heard a convicting sermon where an evangelist or a preacher shared the gospel and you just thought to yourself, I believe in that. Or maybe you had a conversation with a friend who shared the gospel with you one day and asked you to accept Jesus, and you did. And that's some of you. Others of you, maybe you really just did attend the church every single day of your life, every Sunday. You heard the gospel week after week taught by faithful teachers in Sunday schools and in discipleship classes and all these different Bible studies. And what was happening there is that God was priming your heart the God was always there knocking at the door of your heart, and so you slowly came to believe. Some of that, that's how you came to believe in Jesus. Others of you, you can't remember the time when you weren't a Christian. You grew up in a home where Jesus was loved, and Jesus was cherished, and he was talked about, and your parents had vibrant love for him, and you just grew up having vibrant love for him, too. You just came to cherish and celebrate him, too. And that, you just became a Christian that way. You see, how we encounter Jesus, all that is totally subjective. Everybody meets him in different ways. But this is where we need to be careful that we don't shoot ourselves in the foot. Because although each one of us, we have different stories, we can't speak about the truth of Jesus Christ as if that was subjective and personal. You see, we can't share our testimonies in a way where we're saying, like, this is true for me. No, no, no. What happened, in, what, what you experienced, and the way you experienced it was for you, but the truth of it is not for you. This is what I experienced. And we sometimes couch it in such a way where, where we kind of not only tell our stories as something subjective and personal, but we almost encapsulate the truth of the gospel as something subjective and personal. But listen, Jesus isn't real and the gospel isn't true because of what you have to say about it. It's true because it's true. So when Paul shares the testimony and someone says, well, you're crazy, Paul says in verse 25, I'm speaking true and rational words. I'm not out of my mind. I'm testifying to a truth. In fact, you know why a personal testimony is so powerful? It's powerful precisely because it's grounded on the truth of who Jesus is and what he came to do in the world. Not on some emotional and impersonal experience you had. Because then that wouldn't be hopeful at all. I had this great experience. I hope one day you have it too. Well, no, 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 You encountered the living Jesus Christ, experienced the forgiveness of his sins. He is true. Do you believe in that? You see, the Jesus that you're talking about and all the experience you're sharing, that Jesus, because he is real, he is available to the person you are sharing him with. 
And so, yeah, all of us have different stories. We're all saved from different things. We all encounter Jesus in different ways. So that part is subjective, but the objective reality is when Jesus came into your life, he gave you two things that it says here in the text. Two things, verse 18, receiving forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. That doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you're coming from, when you meet Jesus, when you encounter Jesus, you are given forgiveness of sins and you are given a place in his kingdom. And so what's offered here can be received by all who encounter Jesus. And therefore, in your testimony, and this is why some testimonies uh, are awful ways of evangelism because they're merely about your experience and kind of what you went through. But you have to testify to the truth when you're sharing, this is what has happened, this is how I became a Christian. And then when I met Jesus, he forgave my sins and he gave me a place among the saints. And you can have that too. You can't have my experience, you can't have my history, but you can have what Jesus has offered me because he's offering it to you. So first part of your testimony, life before Christ, what did Jesus save you from? Second, how did you encounter Christ? And when you did, what are the objective things he gave you? And third, life with Christ. See, Paul doesn't stop at the encounter on the Damascus road. He continues to explain what happened after he met Jesus. So Paul doesn't say, life in Christ or life with Christ stopped the moment that I believed in him. No, it only began the moment he believed in him. So in verse 19, Paul says, Jesus commissioned me for obedience to go take the gospel, and I did that, and then I love, this is what Paul does. He does something that all of us fail to do. He brings his testimony right up until the present, right up until the very moment he's talking to Agrippa. Because in verse 22, he looks at him and he says, to this day, to this day, right now, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying. He's saying, God's help, God's strength in my life was not just a thing of the past, but to this day, God's strength, God's help is with me. And that needs to be a crucial part of your testimony in the way, you sh the way that you share your faith. That God is a God who is not, has not just provided, but is provider providing even now. Your testimony must reflect your ongoing need for God's help and the availability of his grace to you even now. Because listen, growing as a Christian, growth in the Christian life doesn't look like maturing beyond the need for God, but by growing in awareness of your need for God. And so here's the thing, when you share your testimony, when you share that you're a Christian, do you give the impression to others that Christianity is about what God once did for you and now I need to become stronger and more independent? Or do you give the impression that Christianity is about receiving God's strength in your weakness and growing more and more dependent on his fatherly love and care? When you tell others that you're a Christian, do you give the impression, I've arrived and I hope you arrive too? or I am journeying, and one day there will be the destination. You see, because your testimony, when you share it, shouldn't be about how put together your life is. A lot of us Christians, we try to present ourselves in a way that our lives are put together. First of all, that's a lie. That's a lie. Who, who of us in here have, has arrived? His life is perfect. And if that's not true, then why do we act like it is? 
Our testimony should be revealing the way in which we are continually broken. But how God's grace meets us in our brokenness, and he doesn't fix us and walk away, but that he holds us together, and if he withdraws his hand, then our life falls apart without him. That's how we should be showing our testimonies. That's how we are sharing it. We are broken people who are being held together by the grace of Jesus even now. Because when you share your testimony, you're not saying, I was bad, but now I'm good. What you're saying is, I am bad, but Jesus is still good to me. Even to the demonic. That is a winsome testimony. That's how you winsomely share the gospel with someone because you're humbly recognizing your ongoing need for Jesus. Because becoming a Christian doesn't mean you're a graduate from grace. When you become a Christian, you don't graduate from grace. When you become a Christian, you enter the kindergarten of grace. You've just begun your growth. So your testimony must include the present way in which God is working in your life, holding you, sustaining you. You know, John Leonard wrote this great book called Get Real, and, and he has this quote, I love it. He says, you don't have one testimony. You have hundreds of testimonies because you have a story of who God is at work throughout your life and how he continues to be, even at this moment. He says, you can never tell the whole story in one sitting. You simply pick a part of the story to tell of how God is working and sustaining you by grace. So learn to tell your testimony in that kind of way. One that comes out of weakness and humility is able to confess brokenness and how you're not put together, not boastfulness and strength and I'm a church attendee and it'd be great if you become a church attendee too. Tell it in a way that speaks not of your goodness and how you have arrived, but of God's goodness and his grace and how he is bringing you one day to that arrival point. You see, we all want this kind of story to be true. But we so often present it in a way that doesn't. Graham Johnston, he, he, he wrote a book and he tells this story that his church was having an outreach event where Christians were standing, they were in a public space and they were standing and they were giving their testimonies. And it was testimony after testimony. And at one point there was an unbeliever. She was... Um, of a professor of a, of a local university, and, and she, she was at that event, she leaned over, she didn't know this guy was one of the evangelists, she leaned over to him and she said, you know what, I don't believe any of this is true. And he looked over at her and said, yeah, I know, but wouldn't you like it to? And right, said, at that moment, the woman's eyes began to tear up because, yeah, her heart said, like, no, no, none of this is true. Or her head said, no, no, none of this is true. But her heart says, yes, I want this to be true. I want every testimony I'm hearing about the goodness and grace of Jesus Christ. I want that to be true in our lives. And it is true. And you have to tell it as it's true. Sharing your testimony winsomely, humbly, admitting defeat, admitting brokenness and the sustaining grace of God so that others will hear that. And even if their head says no, their heart says, yes, I want that to be true. I want a hunger for Jesus in that kind of way. I want to know that kind of security, that kind of hope. I want to know that kind of joy. I want that. I need that. What is that? Which leads to our last point, the power of a testimony. You see, because the power of a testimony is not found in your eloquence or your ability to tell a moving story. Some of you in here, we've talked about this, say, well, what if you're not articulate? What if you're not good with words? But listen, the power of your testimony is not determined on your ability to tell a story, to set up a punchline, 
to conjure up emotions to make your voice quiver so you sound emotional. Well, you need to prepare. Everyone should prepare a testimony. You can't just freestyle it. It's not a rap battle. You can't just go up and think that you're going you're gonna to spit out bars and your testimony will make sense. No, no, no. You need to think about it. You need to prepare it. You need to think about how God has been working in your life. But the, the point is the power is not found in you. The power of the testimony is not found in you, but it's found in the truth that you are testifying about. Because when you tell a truth in the Holy Spirit, it's up to him to take that truth and he'll do one of two things. He will either cut someone down into their heart or he will harden their heart with it. Isn't that an amazing thing? You're going, wait, wait, wait. I thought the whole idea of testimony is that you evangelize and you win them over. If you testify to the truth, the Holy Spirit will take that and he will either cut someone's heart or he will harden their heart. <laughs> you know what's exactly, you know what happens in this story? The guy's heart is hardened. Paul shares the testimony, and then verse 24, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Paul shared the testimony. He did everything right. Testified to the goodness of God and the grace of Jesus. Revival didn't break out in that room. There was no altar call. There's no passion of tissues because people were weeping from their sins. The gospel would remain foolishness and folly to Festus. Nobody repented. No one believed. Why? Because this is not formulaic. This is not say this, tell this, do that, and this will happen. This is nothing that Paul could control. It's nothing you and I can control. But it's free and liberating to know that the power is not in us. That we just testify to the work of Jesus Christ, and it's up to the Spirit. Because Paul, the great apostle Paul, testifies. No one believes. There's a woman at a well in John 4 who's neglected, ashamed, despised, on the outskirts. Jesus meets her, has one conversation with her, and it says in John chapter 4, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? This nobody of a woman. She's no Apostle Paul, no training, no brilliance, no eloquence. And yet John chapter 4 verse 39 records, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And for some reason, the Spirit chose to use her testimony to lead people to Christ that day. He didn't use it when Paul delivered powerfully and boldly, but when this poor, unwanted woman said it, the Spirit blessed it. You see, God is sovereign. And therefore, you don't know how he will choose to use your test testimony. You, you don't know that. But there's one thing you can know for sure. I'll tell you, there's one thing you can know for sure. If you don't share anything, God won't use that. If you don't share anything, God won't use that. You see, the Holy Spirit does the work. He puts, your, he, he put, he puts power in the things you say, the things you speak. It's the Spirit, not us, and, and that should free us to boldness because there is a lot of temptation to timidity. 
Have you ever talked with an unbeliever and you just felt totally inadequate for the conversation? Now, some of you are very well knowledgeable and, and so maybe the other person's scared, but most of, most of us, we're the ones scared. We don't know the words to say. The person is so eloquent, they're so well-read. Well, what about this philosopher and what about this person? And then you just feel totally inadequate. You don't know what to say and that's a human feeling. You're intimidated. And then we're tempted to think, what if I just knew more, if I just was more familiar with the arguments, if I was just smarter, then I could do a better job. But think about this. Apostle Paul, he was standing before King Agrippa. He was a king. He's a man of status, education, wealth, uh, probably, you know, trained with all these royal tutors. And Paul himself, he, he was not a dummy. He was a great intellect, much learning. He was cultured in many ways. He was well-read. He was familiar with all the leading thinkers of the day. And Paul could have approached King Agrippa and used apologetic discourse. He could have appealed to his mind. He could have said, hey, let's reason, and, and what do you think about Cicero, and what do you think about Thucydides, and he could have done all that work, but Paul doesn't do that. You see, when, when we're intimidated, we're like, if I just knew more arguments, if I was just smart, if I was more eloquent with my words, Paul was all of those things, but when he met the king, he said, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna tell him my testimony. I'm gonna testify to the power of God at work in saving a sinner like me. So we can't put our confidence in all the things that we think we should know, but we put it in the spirit who can change lives with just a simple message. Now let me close with this story here. I heard this story from uh, uh, Tim Keller where he, he, well, it's actually a story that he heard from another guy who heard from another guy who heard from his brother's roommate, but something like that. But the story goes that in 1955, Billy Graham was invited into Cambridge to speak at St. Mary's. And Cambridge, if you don't know, is like the Harvard of, of the UK, very uh, elite uh, institution. And when Billy Graham was invited to come speak, it brought a lot of criticism from the London press because, you know, Billy Graham, if you know anything about him, he's a simple evangelist. And they thought, you know, they were elite uh, intellectual Cambridge and this is a backwoods fundamentalist Christian. What is he doing addressing the nation's best and brightest? Who is he? He believes that the man named Jesus was God and died on the cross. How dare we bring somebody like that? So Billy Graham was aware of all of these things being said about him. And he too was given to the fear of man. So when he came to deliver this talk of St. Mary's, he came prepared with all the quotes and engagement from all the leading thinkers and philosophers of the day. And he preached eight times. The first seven times he preached his heart out, quoting all of these guys. But at the end of each evening, it was flat. The great Billy Graham went to, went to bat and he struck out. And the last night, he finally came to his senses. He resolved, you know what? I'm going to share nothing but the blood. And he knew the room was full of skeptics and, 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 and you know, smart people who doubted. And he knew that they would scoff at the idea that Jesus was the son of God who needed to die on a cross to save sinners. But he said, you know what? I'm going to trust in the power of the gospel. So the eighth time he went and preached, preached this last night, 400 men and women came to faith. Thornton men and women came to faith, and what's interesting is Dick Lucas, who's like a 95-year-old pastor in the UK, um, he was actually at that event in 1955, and he tells of this incident that he met a Cambridge graduate one day, um, and they grabbed coffee together, and as they were talking, he said, hey, tell me about when Christianity became real for you. Tell me about when the Christian life started taking off for you. And the guy instantly replied, 1955, Cambridge, a revival led by Billy Graham. And Duke Dick Lucas, who was there, curiously asked, which night? And the man said, the last night. 
All I remember is leaving the place understanding for the first time that Jesus died for me. See, it doesn't take great knowledge, eloquence, quoting all the smart people in the world. It takes faith, conviction, and boldness that if you testify to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our salvation, that the Spirit will do the work. You see, because a testimony is about you, but it's not really about you. It's about the loving rescue of Jesus who died on the cross to forgive you and welcome you into his kingdom. And when your testimony tells that story, a story about Jesus, when you, tell that, when you tell that story to other people, then you can rest that the Holy Spirit will or will not use it. And the only thing you can control then is being winsome and telling it in humility, not as one who sought and found Jesus, but as one who was running away, but whom Jesus sought and found. And so may you be filled with the boldness to share Christ in your testimony so that the story of God's salvation in your life would be the story of salvation in someone else's life. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we confess all of us here, I myself being the chief of this, that we often have fear um, that we often have uh, wrestle with timidity. We lack courage because we are trusting in ourselves. And I pray that all of us in here, Lord, would be freed, freed from that burden, freed from that expectation, God, freed from that misplaced confidence that somehow it's up to us. But no, God, you have invaded our lives by flooding us with grace. You have held us together. You have mended our wounds. And even to this day, we know the experience of sustaining grace, not just saving grace. And I pray, God, that, that being aware of these things, we can then share our testimonies. And not only share our testimony, but testify to Jesus Christ who came who died on a cross to save us from our sins and to welcome us into his family. And I pray for everyone in here, God, that we understand and recognize we have an amazing testimony because we have an amazing Savior. And so, God, I pray that we could meditate on that this week, that we could think about that. We pray for opportunities this week to share that with somebody. So God, I pray not only that you're working in our hearts, but I pray that you're working in coworkers' hearts and neighbors' hearts strangers' hearts, friends' hearts, distant relatives, maybe even our own very family members. Work so that, Lord, opportunities will be created to share this testimony that it would be used for others to come to know the love of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Receive the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the love of God, the Father Almighty, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you both now and forevermore. Amen. Hear the dismissal from Hebrews 12:14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Go in peace, friends.